be seated. As many of you know, I used to be the director of campus ministry and a high school religion teacher in Lawrence, Massachusetts, an old mill city that since the 1800s has been home to a lot of immigrant communities, like the Irish, Germans, Italians, Polish, Lithuanians, just to name a few, and most recently, immigrants from the Dominican Republic. The high school I taught at is a part of a network of 37 high schools called Cristo Rey schools, all geared towards educating immigrants or children of immigrants. While most of these Cristo Rey schools have an incredibly diverse student population, mine was actually not diverse at all. 95% of my students were from the Dominican Republic. And I've got to tell you, I loved teaching there. I still keep in touch with several of my students. Some of you might have met my former student, Maria Cristal, who stopped here at St. Matt's in August while she was on her way to her first day of seminary. Or you might have heard me brag about another one of my favorite students who graduated from Georgetown and landed a job at Instagram in California. Or another one of my favorite students, a Syrian refugee who graduated from Providence and is now attending grad school in Boston just down the road from her sister, who is at MIT. It's really fun for me to tell these stories of my favorite students because they're clearly exceptional. But today I actually don't want to talk about my favorite student, but I will tell you about my least favorite student. I taught Albert during his junior year, and I'll say it was difficult to be his teacher. This is, after all, a high school religion class. The course is constructed for you to get an A. In fact, you had to try really hard to get a B in my class. I mean, come on, at the end of every test and quiz, there was a bonus question. Tell me a joke. If I laugh, you get 10 points. It seemed to me that Albert was trying to fail my class. He would fall asleep in the middle of class. He didn't turn in any assignments. If there was an in-class worksheet or test, he would turn it in blank. He didn't even write a joke for bonus points. As the end of the first semester neared, I brought Albert into my office, and I informed him that if he didn't pass my class, that he would have to repeat junior year. To which his response was, Whatever, miss, I don't care. And what does it matter to you anyway? I'm not sure what came over me in that moment, but I snatched his cell phone out of his hand and said, you have to meet with me every day after school for two hours and do your work. When you hand in all the missing assignments, you'll get your phone back. And I'll be honest, I wasn't sure if I was actually allowed to do that. And so began a long two months of us meeting every day after school in the computer lab. And the first week of that month, Albert sat with his face pressed against the keyboard. Nearing the end of that week, I impatiently asked Albert, why are you doing this? I care about you. To which he responded, no you don't, no one does. 
and he pulled out of his backpack a math test from the beginning of the year. He failed the test, and on the back of it, his teacher wrote, I don't know how you passed middle school. You should go back to the eighth grade. With that image in your mind, let me take a step back for a minute. When I was a senior in college, an article was published in Boston Magazine titled, Lawrence, City of the Damned. The article highlighted the failing public education system, gun and gang violence, poverty, and the pervasiveness of drug addiction in the city. The first sentence of the article reads, Lawrence is the most God-forsaken place in Massachusetts. Lawrence is the most God-forsaken place in Massachusetts. I knew about this article because I was writing my senior thesis on Lawrence, on its education system, and about how the Cristo Rey educational model, rooted in Christianity, provides a beautiful vision of solidarity and liberative education. And the combative and precocious 21-year-old that I was decided to write a letter to the author of this article and point out the power dynamics of a white man writing this about a city of immigrants. I concluded the letter by citing the Gospel of John when Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah, the Son of God is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I never received a letter back. And I imagine this exchange is what got me that job at Cristo Rey, and it's also what brought me to that computer lab with Albert. I share this story with you because it provides a personal and concrete example of how cultural narratives and news stories have real life consequences. The problem with what Albert's math teacher wrote on his test is that it mirrored the words from that article. And that article mirrored a narrative given to Latinos and Latinas by American society. His math teacher told him, go back to eighth grade. The author of the article told him, your city is God forsaken and damned, and so are the people in it. And our country has said, go back to where you came from. And what Albert hears is that he is unintelligent, that his life will not amount to anything, and that his humanity is worthless. Narratives have consequences. Words matter. Today is the day that our bishops have asked all parishes in the Episcopal Church in Connecticut to speak about race and racial reconciliation. When, when Marissa and I decided that I would be the one to preach today, I spent a lot of time praying about what I would say. And I felt the Holy Spirit moving me to preach about the narratives embedded in our society about our black and brown siblings and the consequences that these stories have. The story that I shared about Albert hits hard. It is heart-wrenching to hear that a 16-year-old boy with a huge heart would believe a narrative that because of where he is from and because of the color of his skin, that he is God-forsaken, damned, literally meaning incapable of redemption. And those words sink in and bear down in his very being.
Narratives have consequences. Words matter. I know that Albert is not the only person this has happened to, because we can widen the picture a little bit to think that Albert's family has only been in the United States for a little bit of time. So we can imagine the significance of words and narratives in the lives of black Americans whose ancestors survived the Middle Passage, who were brought to this country as chattel, and because of the color of their skin were considered less than human and natural born slaves. Our country has been telling black persons that they do not matter for a long time. One of my favorite ethicists, the Reverend Dr. Emily Towns, has argued that the narrative that sustains slavery has never really gone away. It continues on and is perpetuated in how the media portrays black persons, the stereotype of black persons embedded in our society and by a culture of white supremacy. And as James Baldwin says, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us are unconsciously controlled by it. History is literally present in all we do. So these stereotypes that black and brown people are lazy, criminals, reaping the benefits of a welfare and healthcare system, unintelligent and uneducated, and the narratives that they don't belong in this country are not just abstract news stories. Like Albert, they hit the place where it hurts the most. Narratives have consequences. Words matter. On this day, when we're asked to think about race and racial reconciliation, I'd like to invite you all to consider the painful weight of these stories, narratives, and a history of white supremacy that continues to manifest itself in new forms of racism. And if you're anything like me, sitting with this is one of the hardest things to do. My ancestors came from Ireland during the famine. They did not own slaves. And still, as a white American, I must take up the task of racial reconciliation because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. The work of racial reconciliation is not about a moment of forgiveness, like a signing of a peace accord. The work of racial reconciliation is, is ongoing. And I think that our task as Christians in this ongoing work is to construct a different narrative than the one our country, our country places upon our black and brown siblings. We are bearers of a different story, a different narrative, a different truth. In the words of our gospel passage today, we are builders of a narrative of salt and of light. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light. You are the salt. I'll look to all my chefs here today. Marissa, I know you're a good cook. When you're cooking, salt, when used correctly, brings out the other flavors in the dish. Salt brings out the best in food. One of the things that saddened and angered me the most about the Boston Magazine article is that a priest was quoted in it saying, in Lawrence, there is a choice between lightness and darkness. Sure, I thought to myself, in every city and in every state, there are choices between what is building up the kingdom of God 
and what is tearing it down. But as Christians, as bearers of the good news of Christ, when an article says that a place is God-forsaken or that a group of persons are damned, we tell a different story. We see light when others see darkness. We see beauty when others see destruction. And we stand with the people who are demonized in the hope that one day the demonizing stops. And because we see the image of God in all people, we work to build a society where all may flourish. And when we incarnate and make God's love real in the world, when we offer a different narrative, when we take up the work to dismantle white supremacy, Albert feels and knows his worth. Narratives do have consequences, and words matter. So we are the salt so that others can feel and know the light. I was given the privilege to look Albert in the eyes and to say, you are smart, you are kind, you are worthy, and you are loved beyond your wildest imagination. And I got to tell him that he was my favorite student. Albert's the real deal. And I know that not all of us know an Albert. Not all of us have the opportunity to say those words directly to a person who has been demonized by the dominant narrative of our society. And while encounter is the goal, we can help to be a part in stopping the narrative that demonizes black and brown bodies and that says this country is better without them. We are the salt so others can see their light. I look out at all of you. You are the salt. You are the light. You embody the radiant joy of Christ's love, a love that cannot be contained and must go forth to bring out the light in others. You are a part of Albert's story, and together we must work to change the narrative that says he is worthless. Two weeks ago, when I was writing, when I was praying about what to write this sermon about, I got a message from Albert on Facebook. Hey Meg, slash Miss. Just letting you know to this day, I will probably still call you Miss. Hope that's okay. That's something really hard to let go of. But I wanted to send you this message because I wanted to let you know how thankful I am that you were my teacher. I can say with 100% certainty that if you weren't there for me back then, I would most likely not be where I am in my life today. You didn't give up on me. Thank you for becoming a part of my family. From Albert. Narratives have consequences. Words matter. So let's go out of this place to tell a different story. Amen. Please stand as we affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, 